and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we will read from verse 2 to verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. And Matthew chapter 5 is on page 809 of that Bible. And underneath the chapter, the larger number 5, we'll start reading at the smaller number 2, verse 2, all the way to verse 12. This is what the Spirit says. And Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Oh God, we come to Your Word, we come to these precious words from our Lord and Savior in this Sermon on the Mount, and we ask, God, that You will help us to understand that Your Spirit will be our teacher, that You will give us open ears and clear minds, that You will help each of us understand what it is that You want us to know how to change, how to live, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, that we might live more faithfully. We ask for those who don't know Jesus, that You would speak to them by Your Spirit, that You would call them to Yourself, that You would convict them of sin, show them their Savior, and that they would come to Him by faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, it's not uncommon when Jesus teaches in general that He uses common experiences and imagery to get across spiritual truth. So, he will talk about seeds in order to encourage gospel ministry. He'll talk about tombs and cemeteries to warn against hypocrisy. He'll use farming to illustrate the sovereignty of God. He'll talk about weddings to press the need for holiness among his people. He'll use salt. He'll use light. He'll use bread 
and water and camels and needles and fig trees and economics and wine and wineskins and a shepherd with a lost sheep or a woman with a lost coin or a father with lost sons, all in order to press home eternal truth. And we find that Jesus has already been doing this in the Beatitudes. He talks about poverty in order to speak of our neediness, our bankruptcy, our lack before God because of our sin. He talks about the experience of mourning in order to show us what it is, how it is that we must respond to sin. And today, Jesus uses something even more basic, something we experience maybe more than poverty, more than mourning, he may talk about something that maybe you're experiencing now. Hunger, thirst, a rumbling stomach, a dry mouth, that fundamental instinctive need for sustenance. And Jesus uses this to give us yet another surprising image of blessing. Because the fact is, is that we don't envision children who need to be sponsored through Compassion International and think, oh, their lives are enviable. We don't think about those who will go without food in our own country, in our own city today, and think, they're flourishing. And yet Jesus picks up this imagery and speaks of spiritual hunger spiritual thirst, a sense of need and longing for righteousness, and that this is what it is to be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, let's begin with the first part of this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, now, what what, what is righteousness? Well, well, the idea behind righteousness is the idea of being conformed to a particular standard, to what is right. It's when what is, is what ought to be. It's, it, it, it's when words and deeds align with God's standards. Now, of course, as we read the Bible, we learn that God is righteous. He always does and always says what is right. Always. I mean, reality is that there are moments in which people question that. People struggle with the idea that God never does wrong when they look at their own lives. But you see, uh, the fact that we believe it or don't, the fact that we struggle with it or question it doesn't change the reality that He is righteous, that God has not once done anything ever that violated His standards, that was wrong. He's never done wrong. He's never done wrong. It's actually a good thing to remember when you're going through those moments, isn't it? Isn't it good to remember God never does wrong? So I may not understand, and I may struggle, but God never does wrong. He is righteous. He 
always does and always says what is right, whether it's judgment or whether it's salvation. He always does and always says what is right. Now, when we come to think about righteousness as it relates to human beings, the Bible essentially, there are basically three ways that the Bible speaks about um, righteousness when it comes to human beings. So I'm going to talk about two of them briefly and zoom in on the one that I think Jesus is after in this particular beatitude. But there are three of them. There's righteousness before God, righteousness in society, and righteousness of life. These are the three basic ways that that the Bible talks about righteousness when it comes to human beings. So when we talk about righteousness before God, we're talking about a, a legal standing, a right standing before God. And you see, the only way to be righteous before God is to be absolutely, positively in line with His standards at every point. Puts a new twist on the whole question about, well, what about a little white lie? No, 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 no. Even the desire to ask the question violates the standards of God. Righteousness before God demands perfection, and none of us are. The Bible is clear on that in Romans 3. None are righteous. No, not one. Now, some think that the way to solve this problem, because I haven't been righteous to this point, is to begin to outweigh the unrighteous things with more righteous things. What I need to do is to do better. This is often seen, I remember one of our children, who will remain nameless, though the child does have a name, and this child, when he did wrong and he knew it, he often tried, as soon as he knew he was wrong, he would try to overcome it by doing more good, by being extra helpful. I'll do the dishes. I'll mow the yard. I'll do whatever. But friends, the problem is, is that it doesn't work. We can't actually undo it. That's like putting a Band-Aid on a leg that's been cut off. It's useless. It does no good. It can be quite frustrating, actually, to try and do good and wonder, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Knowing instinctively that I can't do enough. C.S. Lewis said, no one No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. We don't actually understand the depth of our problem until we try to solve it ourselves and we see we can't fix it. We see that it's more like a New Year's resolution, like we give it a shot, but it doesn't last. I mean, we may feel like we're making some headway, you know, for that first time you go to the gym, but then there's no follow-up, there's no going through, and all of a sudden it was just this wishful thinking that never, ever happens. Try as we might, we can't be righteous ourselves. We we need a righteousness from outside of us to be given to us. What Martin Luther calls an alien righteousness, something from outside of us if we're ever going to be righteous because there's nothing in us that can be righteous. You see, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The best that I can do isn't just not good enough, you see. 
My best offering up to God is a nasty and filthy and bloody garment. But in Jesus Christ, God has provided righteousness. In the same chapter where he says, none of us is righteous, no, not one, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, at the cross, the Lord Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, who deserves nothing but blessing and reward, was counted and treated as a sinner, not because of his own sin, but because our sin was laid on him. And in exchange, we who are desperately sinful and deserve nothing but condemnation from God are counted and treated as perfectly righteous, not because we are righteous in ourselves, but because Christ's Righteousness is credited to our accounts when we trust Him. We trust Him. We're forgiven of sin. Our slate is wiped clean and we're right with God. Friend, that's nothing that you will ever be able to attain on your own. You can't do it. You may as well get on a treadmill in Indianapolis and think you can run to Greenwood. It ain't happening. But through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, you can be made right with God. And there is no sweeter thing to know than that you are right with God. That's righteousness before God as the Bible talks about it. The other one I'll briefly mention is righteousness in society. And what that means is that things in society function as they ought to according to God's standards. So it means things like justice in the court and integrity in business uh, uh, and honor in political leadership. You see, whether a person is a Christian or not, they want that, don't they? They want honor and integrity and justice. But the problem is, is that we live in a sin-cursed world and try as we might and pray as we might and as we ought to pray and promote and pursue righteousness in the world, we will only have relative success at it. We will never reach utopia. The darkness of sin will never retreat. And yet still... Human beings are better off, generally speaking. Human beings are better off when God's standards are reflected in society's standards. Righteousness in society, when things are right. But I don't think either one of those is the primary thing that Jesus is talking about. I think it's the third one that Jesus intends for us to think about, and that is a righteousness of life. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness of life. The Christian, the one who's blessed, the one whose soul flourishes, 
is the one who hungers and thirsts for this righteousness. And notice it's not an intellectual exercise. It's not the number of verses. It's not memorize a certain number of verses or understand a particular set of doctrines or understand these facts or memorize that or do anything like that. This is not about an, a, a mental fortitude at all. This is about what you want. This is about what you long for. This is about desire. This is about craving. It's not mere starvation and dehydration. When you're starving and when you're dehydrated, you'll drink just about anything. I mean, you'll eat kale if you are starving. This is not that. This is a craving. When you crave something, you're after something specific. You want that thing. When Susan and I got married, um, she didn't really eat red meat at all. And I married her anyway. All right? And yet, in time, she became pregnant with our oldest son, Caleb. And during that pregnancy, a craving was awakened in my bride for cheeseburgers. <laughs> and so when the craving struck, I was commissioned to make or search and find and retrieve said cheeseburger so that the craving would be satisfied. Friend, I think that's actually the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. You see, when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit awakens a craving inside of us, something that we never craved before, something that we actually kind of, we had a distaste for, we didn't even have a taste for it before becoming a Christian, but now we can't get it, we can't get enough of it. We want righteousness. We want to live rightly before God. We want to please God. A life where my thoughts and my words and my actions are conformed to His will. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, once prayed, O Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. That kind of longing is what Jesus is talking about. It's not simply a righteousness that tries to do better at do's and don'ts. Okay? Now, of course, we ought to do what God says to do. We ought to avoid what God says to avoid. But the righteousness we should crave isn't just a righteousness that's on display, that's on the outside. I mean, Jesus says as much when He warns His disciples about the kind of righteousness that the religious leaders are after in their lives. Later in this sermon, in chapter 5, verse 20, He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than nailing down 612 laws from the Old Testament and making sure you don't bust up any of those while other people are watching. This righteousness has to go beyond skin deep. It has to get all the way to your heart so that, so that this righteousness doesn't just avoid murder, you see. This righteousness refuses to harbor hatred in the heart for any other person. This righteousness doesn't just avoid adultery. It refuses to look at and think of any human being as an object for my pleasure. This righteousness doesn't, doesn't give and fast and pray so that I'll be seen as one who gives and fasts and prays. No, no, no. This righteousness does give, it does fast, it does pray, but it does so to please the Lord. Aimed at the one who sees in secret. What is it that motivated you to click on give this week to the, to the church? What is it that motivated you to put something in the kiosk? What is it that motivated you to give in the offering of praise? If it was so that you will be known as a big giver, this isn't the righteousness that Jesus is after. It goes all the way to the heart. It's about our motivations. It's about what we want. It's about what we desire. It's about what we crave. Not a righteousness that looks right in other people's eyes, you see. But, the, but a righteousness that wants to, but one that wants to be right in God's eyes. Not just look right to others. Be right before God. But I want to point out one more thing about this that Jesus is saying before we move on. Notice what's blessed. Read it very carefully. Very carefully. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Take note of this. Jesus is not saying that blessing rests on the particular attainment of a certain level of righteousness. The presence of blessing is linked to the presence of craving, a life craving Christ-likeness. That is a blessed life where your mouth waters for the taste of righteousness in every aspect of life, in your marriage and in your parenting and in your friendships and in your financial life and in your work life and in your school life and in your leisure time. A veritable feast of righteousness all around. That's what you want. That's what I want, Lord. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be for your glory. For your glory. Now, of course, such a craving will lead to pursuing righteousness. It will lead to 
growing in righteousness, but, but friends, that looks different in every life. It looks different in my life than it does in yours, and we grow at different rates, don't we? Of course we do, and even within your own life, haven't you known seasons where it's felt, you've felt kind of stagnant? And others where you felt like the Lord is growing me? I can, I can even sense the growing that He's doing? Or you can look back and say, wow, that month, that year, that decade, the Lord grew me. And that happens at different rates at di- for different people. And we're all at different places in that journey. So don't be discouraged when it feels slower than you think it ought to be. Because what Jesus is saying is that the presence of blessing is linked to the presence of craving. Okay? It will lead to growth in righteousness, but it's not the growth that Jesus is saying here that is blessed. It is the heart desire to grow. It is the craving being right before God, pleasing Him in all things. And so the question that has to be asked to all of us, to myself first, is do you want this? Do you want righteousness? Do you crave it? Do your spiritual taste buds light up for it? Do you long to please God? Is it the deep and unyielding desire of your heart to live in such a way that God is honored by the righteousness of your life? Are you driven by this? 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The question here isn't about the distance that you've gone. It's about the desire that you have. It's it's not about how good you're even doing at the growth thing. It's, It's about do you want it? Do you need it? Do you crave it? Do I? Because if not, you're not blessed. Whatever other bill of goods we might try to sell ourselves, if we don't, hunger and thirst for righteousness, our soul isn't flourishing, which will beg the bigger question of whether or not one is truly a Christian in the absence of such desire. Because Christianity is not merely an intellectual exercise. It is not merely the practice of religious ritual. It is not an emotional experience. It is not summarized by praying a particular prayer and going through a particular rite like baptism and then being part of particular religious ceremonies the rest of my life that is going to church. A Christian is one whose old wants and desires have been put to death and new wants and desires have been born in us. This is what the Bible means by removing a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. You see, our wanter is busted. 
and it can't be tinkered with to be fixed. It's got to be replaced. And so God replaces it and gives us a new heart that has new loves, new desires, new wants. And the overarching desire that comes that is part of our life is that we want to please God. We want to honor God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which brings us to the second part of the beatitude. For they shall be satisfied. Now we should understand this the way that we've understood all the others, which is that the word for indicates a cause. It tells us why. Why those who are hungry and thirsty and crave righteousness, why they are blessed. Why are they blessed? For they shall be satisfied. Why is their life enviable? Why are they flourishing? Because they shall be satisfied. We just read it this morning, Psalm 107, verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now, the Greek word that's used for satisfy is the one that that, that would be used for many turkeys right now. Uh, They're being fed and fattened for a particular purpose, all right? It's coming next month when we all stuff ourselves. But the word is also used later in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's actually used also in Matthew 15 when he feeds the 4,000, and in the account in Mark, and in the account in Luke. When it says at the end, they all ate and were satisfied. You know what the very next sentence tells us? about all the leftovers they gathered up. So they didn't just have enough to eat, you see. They had Thanksgiving dinner. They were stuffed. And there was more left over. And Jesus promises this same satisfaction to those who spiritually hunger and thirst. In John 6, He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, some of you are smart cookies, and you're wondering what's going on here. Because Jesus says we will never hunger and thirst. But in Matthew 5, the way that that's written... It's written in a way that you could say, blessed are those who continually hunger and thirst. What is going on there? Which one is it? Is it that we'll never hunger and thirst or that we should always hunger and thirst? Well, let me answer with a story. I want you to imagine a two-year-old boy living in a part of the world where poverty is rampant and food is scarce. And every time that boy is fed in that place, he stuffs food down in his fist until it is absolutely full. And once it's full, he uses these two pinchers to eat. Why? Because he doesn't know that there'll be another meal that day. And so he does that 
for self-preservation. But then this boy is adopted into a family that has means to provide more than enough food. Eventually, this boy comes to understand there will always be another meal and snacks in the pantry and even leftovers in the fridge. Oh, he'll get hungry. He'll crave but he'll never hunger and thirst again. See what I mean? And that's what Jesus is saying. Without Christ, our soul is famished and malnourished. But now having him, our soul is satisfied, and it actually creates the right craving in us so that once we're satisfied, we have a hunger for more. We thirst regularly, and we get what we crave. We will never hunger and thirst again, but we will always hunger and thirst. And God answers that, that craving by satisfying us. First, He satisfies us in this life. We're satisfied in this life, not because God zaps us and all of a sudden we are perfectly righteous. No, but as we, as we crave righteousness, as we pray for it, as we seek it, God answers and He works. He works in several different ways. I'll just mention four. He works through His Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that the Bible is useful for training us in righteousness. So that God speaks as you read your Bible each day, as you do Bible studies, as you hear sermons. And He shows us where our lives aren't conformed to His will and where where we need to change. So He trains us to do what? For righteousness. That's one way He satisfies that craving. He also does it by His grace. We can never forget that. When you think of grace, think of power to change. Titus chapter 2 says that grace has appeared once for all, bringing salvation for all men and training us to renounce ungodliness and unrighteousness and to live godly and upright and self-controlled lives in the present age. Godly life. Upright life. This is what grace does. Grace is not just about getting in the door of heaven, you understand. Grace is about coming to know Jesus and growing in Jesus. It is by grace we are saved from beginning to end. It is only by grace that we have the power to renounce ungodliness and unrighteousness, the very thing that would keep us from getting what we crave. He does it through His Word. He does it by His grace. He does it through the church. God provides us in a community of faith with godly friends who will walk with us and pray with us and help us to see where we're wrong and encourage what is right. 
Now, that sounds good to a lot of people, but a lot of people don't submit themselves to it. They just agree in theory. They're in the Bible study and think, that's a wonderful idea. We should have those kinds of relationships with one another. We should have relationships where you know me and I know you and we hold one another accountable. Now I'm going to go back to my suburban life and I'm going to close the garage door and never will you enter my life. But friends, when you hunger for righteousness and when that hunger is deep enough, when the craving is strong enough, you won't let something like pride keep you from being encouraged and strengthened and corrected and taught and helped by the church. Through His Word, by His grace, through the church. And friends, He, he satisfies our craving for righteousness through suffering. Now that may seem counterintuitive, but it's clear in the New Testament in places like Romans 5 and in James 1 that God uses the various trials of life to produce righteousness in us. He shows us where we've gone wrong, where where we're walking in unbelief or self-reliance or pride, and He changes us. But not only that, do you know what suffering does? Suffering gives you a distaste for this world. All of a sudden, when everything's going along swimmingly, it feels like you can't get enough of this world. I just got this, and I got that, and I got that. But then when you begin to suffer, you know what you realize? That stuff was never as good as you thought. You get a distaste. The taste buds that had you clinging to the world are replaced by taste buds that have you longing for the hope that is to come. It has you seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. And he can do whatever he wants with all those other things, as long as I get him. These are ways that God satisfies our craving for righteousness in this life through his word, by his grace, through his church, through suffering. But not only does he satisfy us for this craving for righteousness in this life, we are satisfied at the end of this life. You see, getting the righteousness that we crave in this life is a journey, and it often feels like three steps forward, two steps back, doesn't it? Or maybe one step forward, five steps back some days. I don't know. And that being satisfied in this life is like that, but being satisfied at the end of this life is not a, so much a journey, it's an arrival. It is permanent. We'll be completely free from sin, completely free from temptation. Even these bodies will be set free from the curse of sin that rests in it and on it. Philippians 3 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it await, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. 1 John 3 says we will be like Him 
because we will see him as he is. There will be no unrighteousness left. We will be righteous. We stand righteous before God now through faith in Jesus Christ, and we will be made righteous forever through Jesus Christ. Because we'll be like Him. We will have the unending, unhindered experience of satisfaction. They, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Your life, friend, is enviable when you desire to please God and honor Him and be right in His eyes. Your soul is flourishing when you long for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. No doubt, no question, no might, no maybe, no if. They shall be satisfied. The question is, will you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let's pray together. Oh God, how we know that the trappings of this world woo us and seek to win us. How we know that all manner of things become the craving of life. But God, we long to crave righteousness above all else. And so we pray that You will meet us in our need, our need to crave You, our need to hunger and thirst, that You, by Your Spirit, will create in us a continual craving for righteousness. And we do pray that through Your Word and by Your grace and through Your church and even through suffering, that You will satisfy that craving in this life. And we thank You that one day we will be satisfied forever. Forever. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. And for now and for this day, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all. For Christ's sake and in His name, amen.